0: Well, today I brought a little piece of American history. I don't know about you. I am a history buff, provided that it's distilled through something small. Um, There's a lot of history to read, right? And a lot of history is not always terribly fascinating. You have to kind of weed through some things to get to some interesting stuff. But there's definitely certain sections in history that we are more interested in than others. And I believe as Americans, uh, man, the War for Independence is huge in our history and we love to kind of learn about that understand it and study it because again It really says a lot about us and how we see the world our placement in this world that kind of thing So uh, just personally it is a section of history that I enjoy reading and what I have with me today I thought this had unique pertinence to the topic is I have the Jefferson Bible And and I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to pick this up, but it is a fascinating little book, and I'll explain it in a second, but but I think it's good also to be able to go back and look at what the original people said versus what people say they said, right? Because it's really easy to do that, especially with the founding fathers. There's this debate always as far as, uh, you know, they were all Christians. No, they were all deists, and people argue back and forth, and Everybody sort of politicizes the topic even, turns it into sort of a religious fight. I'm not sure that's ever to really be the intention behind it anyway, but it turns into that. And yet it's great in this little book because Jefferson himself tells us what he believes. That's kind of the, the content of this. In fact, if you ever pick one up, uh, the introduction is great. Basically what it is is he's writing to an old friend of his. His name is Benjamin Rush and He and Rush, Jefferson and Rush used to get together from 1789 to 1790, roughly in there, uh, and they would just talk about different topics. And one of the topics they would discuss was Christianity. And in this, Benjamin said, you know what, I really think that someday you should write down what you really think about Christianity, what you really believe. That would be tremendously interesting for me personally. Jefferson took him up on that offer or that idea and eventually wrote this little document right here. And so it starts off, this is April 21st, 1803, sent from Washington. He says, Dear Sir, and some of the delightful conversations with you in the evenings of 1798 through 1799, the Christian religion was something of our topic, and I promised that one day I would give you my views on it. He says, these are the result of a life of inquiry and reflection, and very different from that anti-Christian system imputed to me by those who know nothing of my opinions. Gotta love the way he wrote. Right? He says, to the corruptions of Christianity, I am indeed opposed, but not to the genuine precepts of Jesus himself. I am a Christian in the only sense in which he wished that anyone would be sincerely attached to his doctrines. So this is what he writes to this friend of his. He kind of starts off and says, here's where I land, at least generically. And so from that, by the the end of this little introduction letter, he says, I too have made a wee little book from the same materials. And by this, he's talking about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He says, I took the Gospels, and from that, I made up a little book that I call The Philosophy of Jesus. It is a paradigm of his doctrines made up by cutting the text out of the book and arranging them on pages in a blank book in a certain order based on time and subject. So he takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and a razor and he starts to just cut away at those Gospels and then re-compile kind of them in a book that says, here's what I'm really all about. He says, so I compiled it into this book, this blank book, and it is the philosophies of Jesus. So he didn't call it the Jefferson Bible. He called it the philosophies of Jesus. right, so he's got it all put together, and then he says this, a more beautiful or precious morsel of ethics I have never seen. It is a document and proof that I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. So when people say, well, where did Jefferson land? Jefferson tells us where he lands. Now, here's where this gets really interesting. So you can read through all of this, and there's different sections, parables and stories and all of that. But then you go to the very last page of Jefferson's philosophies of Jesus, this Jefferson Bible. And it says this. Then they took the body of Jesus, and they wound it in linen cloth, and they anointed it with spices as the manner of the Jews so as to bury him. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden And in the garden there was a new sepulchre where no man had ever been laid. And there they laid Jesus. And they rolled a great stone in front of the doorway of the sepulchre. And they departed. End of the Jefferson Bible. So, Jefferson was a follower of the teachings of Christ. But he was not a follower of the risen Lord Savior Jesus. Jefferson loved the words of Jesus, but Jefferson did not love the notion that Jesus was God. And the way he pays tribute to the fantastic words of Christ is he leaves him dead in his Bible. He says, For me, Jesus didn't rise. In fact, if you read it, you will also see that Jesus wasn't virgin born. He doesn't like the virgin birth, he doesn't like the resurrection. For Jefferson, Jesus was a good man, but he is not the risen Lord and Savior. And so in a strange sort of way, he claims the title Christian, but rejects the gospel. And I think that sometimes happens in other venues and other places with other people where they say, man, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. His words are awesome. But I'm just not so sure about some of the miraculous things of Jesus. The most miraculous being, he's not dead. Some go, man, I just can't turn that corner. That is, that is too much. And yet for us as Christians, as we're studying doctrine, uh, we're looking at things like God comes and God dies. Well, you know what's really important to that? God rises. That He is risen. That He's alive. That is central to everything we believe. That is, in essence, the gospel. That is the gospel. Now, some of you this morning might be here and you hear that word gospel and you're not even exactly certain what that means. Maybe you've just heard it attached to gospel music or you've heard somebody say something about the gospel, but you're not really fully certain what that word embodies. And so I'm going to make it real simple, really quick. Gospel means good news. Good news means nothing unless you know the bad news. The bad news is we stink. The bad news is we're broken sinful, and selfish individuals. Now, I know some people, they instantly, they hear that like, I'm not that. I'm not that. But last week when we met in the park, we talked about the cross and we said the number one sin that humanity commits is that they don't love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you can honestly say, I love God more than everything else around me, then we can talk about how you're probably not a sinner. See, we put sin always in this realm of morality or violating morality. God says, those are sins, but the bigger sins is that you don't love me, you don't worship me, you don't seek me above all else, you don't want me first and foremost, you don't give me glory in everything. I have to beg of you sometimes even to just come to church and and, and sometimes to read your Bible and sometimes to pray. I'm just not that thrilling in your life. All of that is sin. And the bad news is that God says, if you don't really want me passionately, we don't have a relationship. That's the fallen condition. That's the bad news. That's why none of us are, 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 are really seekers of God. All have sinned and fallen short of His glory because none of us really love His glory above all else. That's bad news. The good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news is that while we didn't want God, God wanted us The good news is even though we will still fall short of giving him the glory that he's due, he says, I want you anyway. I want to bring you to myself. I want to make you my child. I want to adopt you into my family. I want you to call me Papa. That's what I want you to do. God saves sinners. That's the good news. So the gospel is good news in light of the truth of our bad news. And the way we see the gospel played out is first through the cross, right? The gospel is about the cross. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand. He says, for I deliver to you as of first importance that which I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He says, here's part of the good news. Somebody died. Somebody died for our offenses. Somebody died for our lack of affection. Somebody died for our poor priorities. Somebody died for all of our feeble attempts at religiosity and legalism and righteousness. Somebody died to solve all of that mess. That's the gospel. But it's not the full gospel. Maybe Jefferson could have went that far. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe he could have said, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for our sins somehow. I don't know what that means. Maybe it's just an example. It's not literally a substitution. But maybe Jefferson could go there, but that's not the full gospel because Paul says, I preach the gospel to you, and it's not just about the cross. The gospel is the cross and the resurrection. It is and. It's not just cross. It's gospel, uh, it's cross and resurrection, right? He says, I preach the gospel to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It's not enough that He just died on a cross. It wasn't sufficient. In fact, I, and I, I don't want like the real scholarly ones in here to like all of a sudden start like doing the little butt crawl when I say this, but you gotta, you got to be okay with this. Um, the cross, in and of itself was insufficient to save us. The cross in and of itself was insufficient to save us. Now let me tell you what it was sufficient to do. It was sufficient to punish our sins. It was sufficient to purge our sins. It could do that. But what it didn't fully do is give newness of life, right? It takes away the oldness of death. It deals with our problem. It deals with our rebellion. It deals with the rejection. But it doesn't infuse something new. To have something new infused to have life where well, you can't have a dead Messiah. Right? So he goes to the cross, dies for our sins, takes the wrath. And man, our sins are expunged. He takes everything we earned and deserved. But as He rises from the grave, there's this authentication, there is this sense of explosion of God's love and life and glory that comes to Christ and with that comes to us that Jesus rose in newness of life is why we have newness of life. That is why I say again, the Gospel, the full expression of the Gospel is cross and resurrection. Jesus died, He was buried, and he rose. That's why we don't say, hey, the good news is we have a dead Lord. We say the good news is we have a living Christ. The good news is that Jesus lives, not just that he died. And so I want us to get that this morning. What the resurrection is really all about. How critical it really is. And so today we look at resurrection God saves, right? Because it is central to our faith. It is no small hiccup in the overall story of Christianity. It is huge, and without it, man, we will see it is nothing. So we're going to unpack this uh, relatively quick this morning, as quick as we can, and I want to start by looking at what is resurrection. I mean, what is the resurrection? Because there may be some of you sitting out there and you go, man, I'm not even fully certain I could give an adequate definition of Of what that means. Now, to do this, I'm going to do it like a good old Puritan would do it. I'm just going to do it without a weird robe and a big hat and the authority to give scarlet A's to everybody I see fit to. I'm not going to do that. But, like, I'm going Puritan in the way I'm going to teach this. And and the way the Puritans would do this is they would say, I want to teach you something, so I'm going to tell you all the ways it's not. And then I'll tell you what it is. So here, let me tell you what resurrection is not. Resurrection is first, not resuscitation. It's not resuscitation. So when we talk about Jesus died and was buried and rose, we're not saying that, you know what, there in the tomb, somehow there was some resuscitation, that the divine paddles came down and... You know, we're not talking about that. We're not talking about some, well, he was clinically dead on the slab for four minutes. You know, we're not talking about that. Right? Right? Because that's not it. Even in our own lives, you know what I mean? You know, it's like if, if you're dead for a couple of minutes, you, you, you drown and they bring you back, you aren't resurrected, you're resuscitated. Even if you look at the story of Lazarus, right? Four days in the tomb and he stinketh according to the authorized version. Still, he wasn't resurrected, he was more like supernaturally resuscitated. The reason we say that is because eventually Lazarus, back into the grave. He dies again. Resurrection is not resuscitation. The next resurrection is not reincarnation. It's not this idea that you know what you die and you come back as something or someone else. That's not it at all, right? Especially because what what is what is the whole idea of reincarnation built on? Right? How good or bad you are is how you come back. So if you're really, really good, you come back and you're more enlightened and you're born into a better family or culture or society. And if you're really bad, you come back as like cat. You come back as like, I don't know, Billy Ray says mullet. I don't know what you come back as, but you come back as something bad, right? One of the members of Jersey Shore, you come back as something bad. That's all I know, right? That is not resurrection, right? That's not what we're talking about. You don't come back as someone or something else, and certainly not based on your merits that way. The third thing is resurrection is not relocation. It's not relocation in the sense of, what I mean by this is, like when we as Christians die, um, I think we have this unconscious um, tendency to go, um, well, as soon as I'm dead, I'm just going to whatever's next and that's it forever, and... You know, I get to go to heaven, and that's the rest of my eternal state. That's not really what the Bible communicates. What happens is, is we die, and then we exist in some sort of soul or spirit form, and we're with God and everything else, but then down the road is this thing called resurrection. I think sometimes we just kind of think like, man, once I'm dead, it's over. I'm game on, I'm just going to go do what I do. No, that's, that's an intermediate state. Right? So, don't just think, like, once I'm out of this world, I'm off to the next one. I'm relocated, and that must be the resurrection. As soon as I die, that's resurrection. It's not resurrection. Right? Resurrection is very particular. Resurrection is, right? We've been saying what it's not. Resurrection is renewal. It's renewal. Literally, it is life after life after death. I know, you're going to write that down and be like, I don't get it, man. Carry the one. I still don't get it. You know, like... Life after life after death. All right, here, here's, here's what I'm communicating in this. Um, you know, when, when we die, for example, I'll use us as the example. When we die, we'll die absent from the body, present with the Lord. Our body is scattered on the beach where the family scattered us, or in, in a tomb someplace or whatever it is. We're there, but our spirit is with the Lord, right? That, that's, that's life after death, but life after life after death is when the resurrection comes and our bodies and souls are rejoined together and then we're in our eternal state. That's the life that happens after life after death. So when we look at Jesus then, it's the same thing, right? When Jesus rose, he was in life after life after death. So let me me see if I can put the picture together. Uh, Friday, he's crucified, takes the wrath of God, cries out, it is finished, dies on the cross, pull him off, put him in the tomb. And for this period of time, these three days, he is, his soul is doing something other than his body. His body's dead in the tomb weirdly like in first peter it says he's preaching to the spirits in prison i don't even know what that is man i have no idea you know they're like he descended to hell that's the old uh, apostles creed doesn't really say that and peter just said he preached to the spirits who were in prison but his soul is doing one thing his body's dead right now he's experiencing life after death but on the third day his soul and body are reconstituted together And the stone is rolled away and he comes out of the tomb and there he exists in life after life after death. He's renewed. Just as it says in Revelation, I make all things new. Well, he's renewed. It's not a different Jesus. It's the same Jesus. It's a different body, but not fully a different body. It's renewal. And so that's resurrection. When we think about resurrection, we're thinking of renewal, which is the whole essence of the gospel. God wants to renew all things. And Jesus is the first fruits, it says, of that renewal. See, this is why we get excited about the resurrection. It's not just some theological platitude that we say, hey, how nice is that? No, it is the symbol, the guarantee, the down payment, and the promise that all things will be made right. All things will be made complete. When you see heinous and broken things in the world, you look at the resurrection and say, but don't worry, one day it'll be renewed. When you feel your body wearing down, I'm like 41 plus. I, I know that's young to some of you, but I'm feeling like an old man already. And I'm like, it'll be renewed. When my son picks on me for getting old, I'm like, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to break on you too, jerk. And one day, it'll be renewed. I love my boy. All right. So we can look at all the brokenness. Oh, it'll be renewed because that is resurrection, renewal, life after life. After death. And so that's what we mean by it. The next question is, why does it matter? I mean, we could get excited about it, right? And say, man, thank you, Jesus, that you're not going to leave this world in its mire. And man, there is mire. But does it matter at some deeper core level? Is it central to everything we hold? Yes, it is. It matters. And And I bring this up because... I think sometimes, again, I think uh, there's things that we just don't intend to do. I'll say this. I've said it already this morning. We have these unintended defaults. And one of the unintended defaults is because as Christians, we make so much of the cross. We see the cross as the big story. And it is. I'm not taking away from the cross at all. It's why we preached it last week. Cross precedes resurrection. It's a huge important point. But I think as Christians, we almost see it as like the scene in the movie where like, Frodo and Sam get rid of the ring and the bad guys are all wiped out. It's the scene where Bruce Willis, he's just taking out everybody and saves the building or the plane or the city or whatever he's saving on that flick. You know, like like that's the cross, you know. All bad guys lose. And it is, that's the cross. No wonder we love the cross for the fact that all the bad guys lose. But then we almost see the resurrection is like the wind down of the movie. Like oh there's Bruce Willis in the ambulance smoking the cigarette getting patched up laughing with his buddy about how they saved the world, right? Like it's that, or it's like Sam and Frodo and the other hobbits like going back to the Shire and everybody giving them the stink eye and they're just smiling with their new digs, you know? Like that's resurrection. It's just the nice little tidying up of the story. We needed some resolve, right? No, this is not really the case. It is it is remarkably centered. In fact, Paul is, is dealing with this in 1 Corinthians, and this is what he says. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? He says, for if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. I mean, this is no small thing to Paul. He's like, man, listen, I love the cross. I preach the cross. I'm in the cross. I'll die for the cross. Paul was cross-centered, but he knew that the cross was insufficient in and of itself to save. And so he looks at this and says, man, if you guys start taking the resurrection out, everything I preach is in vain. The cross is in vain. He goes even further in this. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. The cross wouldn't even accomplish the goal without this. He says, you're still in your sins. He says, and then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. They're in hell. They're gone. He says, if in Christ we have hope only in this life alone. Right, Jefferson, I like the Jesus of this life. He says, if our faith is in Jesus for this life alone, he says, we are to be the most pitied of all. See, the formula is really simple. If Jesus rose, we should do everything he said. And if Jesus has not risen, do yourself a favor right now. Go home. Turn on the game. Save your money. Write your own moral code book. Do your own thing. Because this is a giant waste of time. Especially for you Cedar Crest students. Why would you choose to be here six days a week? Right? Go home. Take two off from this place. Because it's worthless and it's futile and it means nothing. I would go a step further and say, you know what? Don't even take your cues from the teachings of Jesus because he's not a great example. If Jesus didn't rise, you know what he was? He was a jobless, homeless, girlless, non educated liar. I mean, really, that's what he was. He began to say, wow, but he had this really great golden rule. I'd say, yeah, he had this really great golden rule. He also said, if you don't follow it, he'll send you to hell. That's a lunatic if he isn't Lord. So you're really left with a very simple choice. And this is what Paul sees. He says, man, it matters because without the resurrection, we're all just going to hell. Doesn't really matter. We should be pitied. Drop Jesus completely. Do your own thing. Make up your own religion. Go Scientology. Why not? Tom Cruise is. Why wouldn't you want to? Right. Now, th- this, this becomes completely central. In fact, in, in the book that we've sort of tagged into this a little bit, I really have not quoted from the book at all in this series, but I thought this was such a great quote, I'll use it here. It says, if Jesus is dead, then Christianity is dead. If Jesus is alive, then Christianity is alive. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is no Savior, no salvation, no forgiveness of sin, and no hope of the resurrected eternal life. Apart from the resurrection, Jesus is reduced to yet another good but dead man, and therefore is of no considerable help to us in this life or at its end. Plainly stated, without the resurrection of Jesus, the few billion people today who worship Jesus as God are gullible. Their hope for a resurrected life after this life is the hope of silly fools who trust in a dead man to give them life. Subsequently, the doctrine of Jesus' resurrection is without question Profoundly significant and worthy of the most careful consideration and examination. In fact, Murray Murray Harris said it this way He said, About the resurrection, the New Testament loses its soul and center pillar. The resurrection isn't just a nice thing or a good thing or an important thing, it is everything. It is everything. That's why it shouldn't just be an afterthought or a secondary or, oh, what happens after the climactic big adventure scene where the bad guy loses. It gives the cross its significance. That's what Paul says. Man, without it, you're still dead in your sins. crossed cross didn't do a thing. We need these together. We need them together because it accomplished something very strategic. Romans 4.25 says, He, Jesus, was handed over to die because of our sins. And he was raised to life to make us right with God. Again, these are just bolted together. They are what they are. Now let me share with you how this works. The first part. um, We see Jesus comes onto the scene in the Gospel of John chapter 1. And there's John the Baptist. And he's hanging out doing his, you know, baptizing thing. And eating locusts and wild honey. And he probably looked just like a crazy man, right? But he sees Jesus. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Jesus becomes Lamb. And in the Old Testament, you would take the Lamb one-year-old, raised in your home. You would bond with this animal. Don't think the lamb was just out in the field and you would grab the nearest one when it was time to, to go for sacrifice. No, you cared for this lamb. You raised this lamb. This lamb became your pet. You had your kids loving on it. It was in your home, not outside with the others. You were connected, and then once a year you would take that lamb and you would go and slaughter it. It'd be like taking your family pet where you would have this, this emotional connection and the sense of, man, this is really going to hurt. Everybody's going to cry over this one. And then the whole scene is basically the priest putting your family's sins on that little lamb that you have raised and bonded with. And then there they would, they would slit its throat and kill it. And so in one very real sense, he was handed over to die for our sins as the lamb where all of our sins are placed on him. Right? That is his role. And so the cross fulfills that, that role and responsibility as lamb. But then here's the cool thing. After three days, Jesus rises to make us right. The way he makes us right is he transitions from being lamb slain to being high priest. Who takes his own work and applies it for us. He takes the blood that was spilled, His own blood, and as high priest, now applies it for our salvation, applies it to our lives, so God passes over us. So He is lamb and priest. That's what Romans 4 is talking about. It's lamb and priest. That's what it accomplished. In fact, a great quote, I've heard it before, and I came across it again this week, I love this. Really, what you have in the resurrection is it's God's amen to Jesus' it is finished. The resurrection is God's amen. I'm pleased. I'm satisfied. Thank you, my son. You've done it. Thank you. You have redeemed people back to us. You have ransomed them from their death, from their disease, from their sin, from the devil, from brokenness. All things will be made new. And you've started that, my son, because you were lamb and high Priest. See, that's why it matters. That's why God says amen and raises Jesus from the dead. The resurrection matters. And so my prayer is that we don't lose sight of that centrality. That we don't minimize just how critical it is. Man, it is like, you know, if if you're taking all things as being equal, well, these are the upper half of the all things being equal. All the things that we believe and hold dear as doctrine. This is up in the top shelf stuff. We rely on it. We need it. We depend on it. We love the fact that Jesus rose. Now, maybe some here this morning go, I don't know, man. It's still a jump. Maybe there's some even say, I I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. But boy, the resurrection, I always just kind of hold it out there loosely because I never know quite what to do with it anyway. And the question is, is the resurrection then reliable? We're dealing with doctrine. Is it reliable, and are there things that we can look at to go, man, it is reliable, and I can trust it for life? Let's go ahead and check this out. Is the resurrection reliable? That's really the question before us uh, this morning as we kind of get to this point in our message. And uh, in thinking about that, I figured the best place that I could go and really shoot a video on this is right here in the local cemetery. And I did that because really what all of us know is that death is the one true guarantee in life. There are no guarantees. We raise our kids telling them that. We say that in business. We say that in life. But in reality, we know that that is the most fundamental truth, that we're all going to die someday. And so because of that, when we hear about the resurrection... If we don't have faith in Jesus and faith in the resurrection, uh, the resurrection just sounds crazy to us because, again, we look around at everything and we go, man, death comes to all. That's just the promise. And so uh, why would I think that there was this guy 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God who died and then literally and physically rose from the dead three days later? I mean, it just sounds like a crazy idea. And so from that, a lot of times, those who do not share our faith they go, man, what kind of proof do you have? Well, uh, obviously we can't bring scientific proof to the table when it comes to the resurrection. But there are some things that we can look at as sort of circumstantial evidences for what the resurrection's all about. And so this morning, I'm going to give these to you in rapid fire pace. It's going to be like popcorning uh, apologetics. Uh, but hopefully from that, you get a sense of why while we take the resurrection in faith, we don't take it purely in faith but we take it in faith, plus looking at some pretty incredible evidence that points to the reliability that Jesus rose from the dead. The first evidence has to do with witnesses. And when I say witnesses, I mean plural, right? We read in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that Jesus appeared to Peter, and then to the 12, and then to over 500 people at one time. Now, when you start running around claiming a resurrection, and you start claiming a lot of witnesses to that event, the risk is people are going to go find the witnesses and say, hey, did this Really happened? Did you really see him? Now, when you start claiming 500 witnesses, it's pretty tough to say that was just some kind of, I don't know, uh, just illusion that appeared out of nowhere or some kind of stupor that everybody fell into. In reality, by claiming so many witnesses, you're inviting scrutiny, you're inviting people to come and inquire is this true? This becomes one of the great evidences of the resurrection because, again, so many claimed eyewitness accounts of it and so many others pointed people in the direction of the eyewitnesses. Now, from a general historic perspective, we absorb a lot of things as being historically true because of eyewitness accounts, whether it be the war for independence, whether it be things going back to Christopher Columbus or even further back. We trust the handwritten witness accounts of events and we go, that's history. Well, in the same way here we go, man, tons of eyewitnesses said they saw the risen Jesus. That gives evidence to the idea that the resurrection isn't a myth, but a reality. The next part has to do with who the first witnesses were to the resurrection, See, if you were writing a really good story, you would make sure that the person that stumbles upon this amazing event is somebody of some credibility, uh, somebody that everybody go, oh, that guy is the first one to have this revealed to him. Well, in the case of the resurrection, the first witnesses were not Peter, James, and John. It wasn't the 12, but it was women at the garden tomb. Now, to we go, hey, that's a great story. But you got to understand, in that day, that was not marketable. That was bad marketing. A woman was not even considered to be a reliable witness in a courtroom. So why would you, wanting to create a story that was going to go viral, choose to make as the center point, the first eyewitnesses being people that most people would not accept as eyewitnesses? See, this is another one of those proofs that we look at because what it shows is there would have been a lot of pressure to reorganize or re-engineer the story for a better marketing campaign. But the church doesn't re-engineer it. They simply tell us the history of it. The most unlikely of individuals were the first people to see the resurrected Jesus. A third thing that we can look at is the reality that Jesus had opposition. Right, And so the religious leadership, they thought they were done. They had crucified Jesus, slammed him into a tomb. He was dead, buried, and gone for them. So then when stories started circulating a couple of days later that said, no, 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 he's risen from the dead, what do you think would be the natural thing for most opponents to do? I don't know about you, but I think what I would do is I would go over to the tomb, roll away the stone, pull out the dead body, hold up the corpse, and say, yeah, um, he's still dead, all right? But notice how they didn't do that. In fact, if anything, they ran with a different story, which is, oh, uh, the apostles, they stole the body. Now, why did they go with that story? Because they didn't have a body themselves to produce. This takes us to the fourth thing, the idea that the apostles stole the body. I mean, again, you just hear that and you go, wait a minute, let me get this straight. I mean, that same group of yahoos and yo-yos and dipsticks that couldn't get things right half the time suddenly had enough genius and courage, who had just run away a couple of days earlier, who were afraid of girls pointing them out as, hey, you were with Jesus, that group, that suddenly they mustered enough courage to storm on a tomb, guarded by soldiers, take out the soldiers, move the rock and steal the body, and then take it away someplace so that they could create a story about the resurrection. I mean, even that right there is another reason why we go, man, Probably not really what would have went down. It doesn't really fit the character of what we see in these individuals. So again, the stolen body theory doesn't work that well either. Another thing is that we make certain assumptions on ancient cultures. And I think one of the big assumptions is we think, hey, man, they were all superstitious. They just believed in every mystical thing that potentially happened and embraced it as true. That's just kind of modern intellectual snobbery. I mean, in some ways, I don't think we're any better. I mean, we look at, like, Photoshop things and believe they're real and throw them on Facebook. And then we look silly when it's all shown as a hoax, right? But in reality, they weren't gullible. There was not a lot of motivation for them to embrace the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. Resurrection was not necessarily a popular idea. There was not a lot of firmed up ideas about the afterlife. And certainly, they didn't want to apply this idea of resurrection to Jesus if it weren't true. Because again, they would be rewriting their entire religious code. It would be as though they were condemning their own souls to hell by making up the story. Because again, it was so far off the beaten path of what they expected in a messiah. Another evidence is put well by Pascal when he said, I believe witnesses who have their throats slit for the truth. Every one of those men who would have, quote, doctored up the story, then chose to die for that story. Not just one, like some wing nut that has a compound someplace in Texas. No, we're talking about repeatedly different individuals Peter, James, Paul. The list goes on. Stephen, people who died for their conviction about the resurrection. Give me one guy that dies for a conviction. I just think he's crazy. Give me multiple people who die for a conviction. Boy, that conviction, man, it better be true, right? And these guys were the originators of all of this. Again, I get that when things get passed down, people grab on with conviction to things that are passed down. But if you're starting it, are you really ready to die for it? And not just one of you, but dozens of you. Another evidence we consider is the eruption of the church. Think about it. Jesus was this pretty popular guy for what he did, not so much for what he said. And then eventually it leads to his crucifixion where everybody's crying, crucify him, kill him, just get rid of the guy. And so he is crucified dead and buried. But then within a few short weeks of that whole season, the church literally ruptures in Jerusalem. Thousands of people begin to follow Christ. The question is, how did it go from a crucified guy to the mass expansion of the church within just weeks or months? Really, was that built on the back of mythology, especially built on the back of a mythology led by guys who really weren't noted for their courage until after the crucifixion of Christ? Well, again, we don't think mythology drove it. The answer, or at least the evidence is, there was a catalytic moment that caused everything to catch and something to really explode and take off. We see that, again, as the resurrection. There is one last thing though about the resurrection that i think is important to consider and that is even for those who are skeptics and don't believe in it they should want to believe in it all right and here's what i mean by that uh the resurrection gives value to the things that we most care about it gives us a reason to want to invest into this world if there's no resurrection Man, we're just clipping fingernails. We're just cutting hair. In other words, it all just drives back to the grave here. It just drives right back to a cemetery where everything ends. And so all the investments to heal the sick and to feed the hungry and to deal with the poor, for what end? If the resurrection isn't real, if there isn't anything beyond this, then all of this is just sort of buying up some time. It's just giving us something to do before we end up in the dirt. But with a belief in the resurrection, man, that gives purpose, that gives value, that subsidizes why we make the investments that we do. So, how Jesus' resurrection affects you. That's really where we drive it all to this morning. I'm going to go through these really quick, just so we understand that it isn't purely just a doctrine for then. It is a doctrine for now. The first way that the resurrection affects you is it points to your ultimate end. As Christ rose, so you too will rise. That is your ultimate end. Right? That is your final resting place, which means you're not going to be in a final resting place. You'll be very alive and very real and very tangible. And you know what? That existence and reality will far outweigh this one. I think sometimes we get these visions of what life is to be like eventually, and we go, man, it's going to be a drag. We're all into big empathy, and we're singing Maranatha music with fat flying babies over our heads with harps. It doesn't seem cool. It doesn't to me that I don't want fat flying babies with harps over my head. But that's not our final state. Our final state is a new earth and a new heaven and it's unbelievably tangible and it's far more radical than anything we can envision. And so when we think about the resurrection, we go, man, that is where I'm going. That is my completion. It's going to be awesome. That's how the resurrection affects you. The second thing, it reminds you of what matters. It reminds you of what matters. You know what? There's a lot of things we think matter that don't matter. We think our careers matter and our cars matter and our houses matter and our money matters. and We think education matters. You know what? Those things are important. But they don't matter. This world is going, man. It is fleeting. And most of its offerings, if you get too entrenched, they just rob you of life anyway. Because it leaves us wanting more. See, I I think about Paul in Philippians 3, where when he thought about the resurrection, it just caused everything else to pale. He just kind of went, yeah, yeah, I, I had a big education, I had a great job, I had a lot of notoriety, I had a ton of friends, and then I met Christ, and now I just want to know his resurrection. That's what he wanted to know. It reminds you of what matters most. A third thing, it gives you hope and hardship. It gives you hope and hardship because you're reminded that this isn't it. I must endure for a little while. That's what you need to tell yourself. In any hardship, I just must endure for a little while. Now, some of those hardships are going to feel really, really weighty. All right? You have cancer, or your spouse has cancer. Or, as I've experienced in my life, dear friends whose children had cancer... And passed away from it. I mean, there's a lot of hardships in life. And yet what the resurrection reminds us of is, you know what? Yeah, this world is broken, but Jesus makes all things new. That's my future. That's our future. I can endure this hardship. The resurrection also affects you because it assures your spiritual journey. It assures your spiritual journey. I I love this passage um, out of Colossians chapter 3. Paul says this, if then you've been raised with Christ. Do you realize you've been raised with Christ already? You've got this final resurrection, but you've been raised with Christ. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. I love that. Because it reminds us, as man, we're on a journey where the resurrection is really the north point on the compass. And from there in Colossians, he says, therefore, put to death the stuff that just hurts you anyway. Put to death the bad decisions. Put to death the rebellion. Put to death the things that create anxiety and depression and fear and worry and doubt and get you off track. He says, and then put on the things that give direction and purpose and love and bring you on to that completeness. Why? Because you've been risen with Christ. And then last, grants motivation for courage. It grants motivation for courage. When you know that the resurrection is your final state, no matter what this world does, no matter what it says, no matter how much intimidation it wants to bring, you go, you know what, I don't have to get bogged down in that. I have courage, in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when Paul gets into that whole thing about, man, Christ is risen. If he hasn't risen, then who cares about our faith? He swings back around on, but oh, don't worry, Christ is really risen. And he says, man, he has conquered death and the resurrection. So he closes out his whole argument by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, the, the labor that you do for the Lord is not in vain. This is why he could say, man, I just want to know Christ and experience the power that rose him from the dead. I mean, Paul is so unbelievably impassioned because Christ rose. He is humbled and grateful at the cross. He is just invigorated and impassioned by the resurrection. That's why the dude could march into a city, preach the gospel, they kick his butt, chuck him out of the city. He gets back up and goes back in. It says, I'm going to be steadfast, immovable. Bring it, world. I don't care. Because I will rise as Christ has risen. It motivates us for courage. So how do we live in resurrection power? Three things. First, you've got to believe it. You want to live in the power of the resurrection, you've got to believe it. Did you know you have resurrection power now? That's what it says in Philippians 3. It doesn't say one day power will rise you from the dead. That's true, but it's not saying that. It's saying that there is a power given to you now, the same power that rose Christ from the dead. You want to live in that power? You've got to believe that Christ has given you that power. You say, I can't overcome this thing. You better believe that there's power and you can. You say, I can't share the gospel with that friend. Well, you better believe there's power and you can. You just got to believe there's power. That's Paul, right? He believed it. He knew it. In fact, that's the second thing. He longed for it. It's not enough, enough to just believe You've got to long for all of that. You've got to wake up every morning. Holy Spirit, good morning. I need your power. You got to go to bed every night. Thank you, Jesus, for this day. Man, I need your power. I need your strength. I long for it all the time. And then last, you need to center on it. You have to center on it. Saying, this is my ambition this is my heart. This is my passion. This is what I want more than. I don't know what your more than list is. I have a long list of more thans. Um, but this has to be the more than anything. I want you, Jesus. I want to experience the power that rose you from the dead. I want to live in newness of life. I want to know what it means above all else to delight in you, to desire you, to please you, to long for you, to hunger for you, to thirst for you to do everything I do for you. Why? Because you're not dead. But you are alive, and you're alive in me. You mediate for me. You encourage me. You aid me. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word, your work, and your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.